This is a Federal News Network podcast. Don't click on that attachment. How many times have you heard that one in anti-phishing training? Often attachments with malicious payloads come in the popular Adobe PDF format. Recently, the National Security Agency issued guidance for how to configure your PDF reader application safely. Here with more on the whole PDF question from Adobe itself, the Vice President for Public Sector Digital Media, Paul Faust. Mr. Faust, good to have you on. Tom, I'm grateful to be with you. Thank you. And I imagine you share the concern with Microsoft where Word is the big payload or sometimes Excel, but PDFs can have malicious payloads. So what's your general thinking on how users can make sure that they can be safe from those because everybody uses PDFs? Yes, that's right, Tom. PDF is a uh, pretty pervasive format. It's been around for over 20 years. In fact, I believe the first killer app for PDFs were downloadable tax forms. So they've become very pervasive. It's an open standard. And I think the big idea here is that more than ever, all levels of government are facing threats around the security of their networks and protecting sensitive information. And that certainly includes any of the attachments that we all receive and send. And there's a rising component of that threat, which is the propensity of bad actors to misappropriate published media. And that starts with documents, which we all know are more or less the lifeblood of government. But that also is increasingly including video and images, what are commonly called deepfakes. And the intended outcome is generally the same, and that's to create misinformation. And that misinformation leads to distrust. And a big part of our role is to make it as easy and as straightforward as possible for government knowledge workers to handle and to publish media that is secure and it's consistent and it's accessible. And that starts with PDFs, and that's to maintain trust with the citizens ultimately. Well, is there a way, though, that a PDF can be scanned? And this is my own knowledge gap here, but often documents coming in, you get a message in Microsoft Outlook, not Mm. so much in Google Mail, but in Microsoft that says this has been scanned and found to be virus-free. So there's really two issues here, I guess. One is a complete fake piece of information in PDF format. The other is a legitimate PDF, but which has been somehow injected with a malicious payload. Two Mm -hmm. different issues. Yes. And so what we have spent a lot of time doing, Tom, is improving what we call protected mode. And it's specifically developed for the Windows environment. And when it's enabled, it opens the document that might have some executable content enabled, but it does it within a sandbox that restricts that document's execution and access through operating system controls. So for example, a process inside the sandbox can't access processes outside the sandbox without the user providing permission, what we call a trusted broker process. All right. Most people just use the reader end, which is what the NSA was concentrating on. So what do you do about the reader, which it's not even an application you generally open separately. You just click on the PDF and the reader invokes itself. So what can the average user do to protect themselves, do you think? The latest NSA guidance actually pertains specifically to reader, and it helps administrators go through a very thoughtful process about what type of content should be executable within that document, and then really strike a good balance between security and usability. You know, JavaScript is what is most commonly used in electronic forms for you and I to complete and sign and and return documents electronically. Sometimes those malicious actors will insert JavaScript that has a really bad outcome intended. And that's a great phishing strategy to send anybody within a a government workforce a malicious PDF 
to get access to information that you don't want them to have access to. So the NSA guidance provides guidelines and a methodology for how administrators can standardize on a particular security posture to deploy Reader throughout the enterprise. We're speaking with Paul Faust. He's a public sector digital media vice president at Adobe. So these controls then have to be deployed by the systems administrators, not something end users can generally do? Generally, end users are going to be better served by a central administrator who's establishing standards and processes to configure that centrally and then deploy that through what we call our customization wizard. So those are tools that we provide right out of the box for all versions of our platform, not just Reader, but also our products that help you publish PDFs. But it's better left in the hands of an IT administrator to set those standards across the enterprise. And you bring up a point. I think I was at the Comdex show dating myself when the PDF format was introduced, and we all thought, seems like magic. You can put any document, and it'll show like it looked originally. But since then, so much more capability has been added to PDFs, like you say, live links, JavaScript execution, and so forth. Is it still possible under the settings recommended by the NSA to get through with links and JavaScript and so forth that the creator might wish the final recipient to still have? Absolutely. And there's a step in the process when any given document would be opened where the user has an opportunity to manually approve the execution of that script or the opening of a URL or other honestly intended uh, content to display. So you know, it goes back to the ability of the IT administrator to make thoughtful choices that actually improve usability as opposed to locking everything down, making PDFs essentially just printable documents that aren't very useful for collaboration or other types of automation. And what about the possibility of man-in-the-middle attacks? Those still can occur. And I'm thinking of this in terms of something you mentioned earlier, which is tax forms. Well, now PDFs mm. are fillable, outable by people as opposed to print and fill in and scan and resend and all of this. Sure. So what about the sure. issue of something that either end did not want to be in there getting in there somewhere along the way? And that could be automated too. Sure. So the idea, I think, for documents that you would download from a government website, I think the greater concern, you know, as opposed to, you know, malicious content that might be in there, the greater concern in many cases in the analysis that we've done across all levels of the government, that includes state and local, is there's actually very sensitive information pertaining to the author, address information, contact information, other PII that at time of publishing, before that document goes onto a public website, was not sanitized. And so part of the equation that we've got a big responsibility to solve for is ensuring that the government is creating documents that themselves are secure. And security includes making sure that there's no sensitive information that could be hidden in the document. You know, PDF is a very extensible standard, and there are easier than ever ways to make sure that PII or other sensitive information does not make it into the published version. Yes. So is there a way that agencies that are deploying PDFs to be filled out, that the information that the person is filling out, the end user is putting in, that could be a federal employee or someone from the public, is filling sure. in the data locally, but the form is actually itself not local, only displaying local? Yeah. Generally, when you've got a PDF fillable form, the author, provided that that author is a trusted author and there are ways to prove 
that that is the case. And you always want to look for certain signs within that document that the author is who they say they are. As long as you trust that author, there's generally not as much of a concern that once you fill that information in and potentially hit a send button, there's generally not a concern that that information is going someplace where you don't want it to. But again, as a user, you've got to make sure that that document is signed by the author who you believe it is to be. And there are really easy ways to do that. And what we're finding is that those are not always being taken advantage of. All right. So use the capabilities out of the box, in other words, and you're probably going to be okay. And just a final question. Did the NSA work with Adobe in establishing this new procedures they've published uh, recently on the reader security? So we've got great relationships with all of our federal partners. And I would say it's a bi-directional sense of guidance along the lines of how to take best advantage of the features and then also what new features Adobe needs to be building into its solutions. So I think the NSA guidance is strong and effective for anybody who's relying on propagating reader across their enterprise. And a lot of that guidance would pertain to the rest of our solutions as well. And by the way, a lot of agency websites give you the option of downloading the latest version Mm -hmm. of Reader in order to see the document you're after. So we can presume that agencies have got it set up so that when people download that, it has those NSA controls in it, or it should by now. Uh, it, It should. I think all agencies should take a look at this latest guidance to make sure that they are configuring on an enterprise level any Adobe software that is viewing PDF. It's very straightforward. And I think the big benefit to everybody is the ability to handle documents and what I sort of consider this to be a digital clean room for documents. The ability for everybody to do that safely is easier than ever. Paul Faust is Public Sector Digital Media Vice President at Adobe. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview along with a link to that NSA guidance at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.